how many of you have a welcome mat at your front door? Most of us have one of these so that we can wipe off our feet before we enter our house, preventing us from tracking the dirt into our home. Most of the welcome mats that we can purchase are pretty generic, while others can be quite elaborate, but most of them generally have the word welcome on them. That's certainly the case for us at the Smith House. Now, this simple word is an invitation that alerts those who are there at our doors that they are welcomed, that they are invited into our fellowship. Now, for many of us, it's probably been a while since we've had guests come to our homes. Yet when we do this and we invite guests over, we recognize that welcoming them, it comes with a lot of responsibility and work. We will bend over backwards to clean like we've never cleaned before so that our house is presentable when our guests arrive. And as soon as they come into our home, typically we might say something like, oh, please excuse our mess. Yet we act as if our home is super filthy. But if we're honest with ourselves, what we should be saying to our guests is, y'all, this is the cleanest that our house has ever been in years. We understand that welcoming is more than just the simple words on our doormats. It requires our actions to complement what we're saying in being welcoming to someone. As we wrap up our sermon series today on Romans, we come to chapter 14 and we read Paul's words that command us to welcome one another. I mentioned to you before that Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome who were composed of both Jews and Gentiles. And needless to say, this mix of cultures can come with some awkwardness. The realities of different practices that could easily cause issues and disputes as over whose practice is truly the right way. This inevitably can lead to disunity and leave some feeling unwelcomed in the church. So Paul begins this chapter by saying, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now the word that Paul begins with in our passage in the New International Version is translated accept, but I have to be honest, the better translation of this word is welcome. Welcome the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters, for God has welcomed them. There's a big difference between the word acceptance and the word welcome. Acceptance is much like tolerating something or someone, but welcoming someone is more than tolerating. It's actually being hospitable. It's kind of like inviting someone over to your home and welcoming them in. Welcoming means that we're willing to spend hours cleaning the house to get ready and make it presentable for our guests to come over. Welcoming means that we're willing to prepare a, a wonderful meal for them to enjoy so that we can enjoy fellowship around the table together. But acceptance, acceptance keeps people at a distance. 
It keeps them far from you. It's not invitational, but welcoming, welcoming, it draws people close. So Paul commands the Roman Christians to welcome one another, putting an emphasis on the strong welcoming the weak. Now, Paul's not talking about physical health or their economic status. He's talking about their approaches to faith. And he fleshes this out by stating the differences between the strong and the weak. The strong are able to eat anything, while the weak only eat vegetables. Now, it may seem odd to you that Paul is talking about food as a symbol of strength or weakness, but you have to understand the historical context for it to actually make sense. Now, it's not uncommon for us today to have folks who eat anything and everything, and it's also not uncommon for folks to be vegetarian or vegan or on a gluten and dairy-free diet. But Paul's point is not about our physical limitations and diet. It's a matter of our faith. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you will find that the Torah, the first five books of the law, gives explicit instructions to the Jewish people not to eat anything that was hooved or considered unclean. It was not kosher to have a pig picking, nor were they to eat anything that still had its blood in it. In addition, it was not kosher to eat with the Gentiles. So you have these laws that governed Jewish dietary restrictions and table fellowship. After Jesus was resurrected, these laws continued to be abided by by the Jewish Christians. To be faithful, one had to adhere to such laws. But when we read in the book of Acts, we find a, a situation in which Peter has a vision from God that gives him permission to eat what was considered to be unclean. And after this vision, he's commanded to go to the home of a man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a centurion in the Italian regiment. He was a Gentile. And when Peter arrives to his home, Peter says to him, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. The Gentile actually welcomed the Jew into his home, receiving his message about Jesus, and he and his whole family was baptized. In this moment, God separated the barriers that divided Jew and Gentile, giving the Jews freedom in Christ from the laws that once divided them. And despite this major event, there were still differences of opinion on this matter. Many Jewish Christians thought that the Gentiles had to adopt Jewish practices in order to truly be Christian, which meant that they had to adhere to the dietary laws, to ritual purity, and even to receive the sign of the covenant of Abraham, circumcision. Yet Paul argued against this, reminding them that they had received the Spirit of Christ not from doing the works of the law, but by their faith. And these same issues that have been at play in other areas to other churches that Paul has written to are still at work here in Rome. Many Jewish and quite possibly Gentile Christians refuse to eat meat from the marketplaces. And the reason being for this is that it's very likely that the meat had been sacrificed to an idol before it was put up for sale. They don't want to defile themselves eating meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan deity. 
Yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. It's in this chapter in Corinthians, Paul acknowledges that eating the meat that is sacrificed to idols is not offering worship to another god. And he calls those who refuse to eat this meat weaker. They are the weaker brother or sister in Christ. And those who choose to eat this meat, they are considered the stronger ones because they are not bound by the rules of the law, but they understand God's grace to abound in these situations. The problem here is not a doctrinal issue, issue though. It's really an issue of faith and practice. Both the weak and the strong are doing what they do because of their commitment to Christ. Therefore, Paul is telling them that the strong must not condemn the weak and that the weak are not to judge the strong. And what he's doing is he's calling them to unity in the midst of their diversity of their differing practices together. This should not limit their fellowship or their interaction. They are free to practice their own way as their own thanksgiving to God. But Paul doesn't just want them to simply accept one another or tolerate one another. He wants them to warmly welcome them as Christ has welcomed them. It's not just even about their table fellowship, but it's also about the holy days that they celebrate. More than likely, this has to do with honoring the Sabbath day, but it could also include other Jewish festivals that would be observed throughout the year. Paul doesn't really expound on this, but we can understand this from their practices. But he does say, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. And whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. In other words, what Paul is saying is that if Jesus can unite the dead and the living through his resurrection, then he can also unite the church that divides itself based on its own interpretations of faithful practice. You know, even the disciples questioned Jesus about this in Mark's gospel. On one particular day, they encountered someone who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they told this man to stop because he was not, and I quote, not one of us. Jesus told them, do not stop him. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Isn't this what happens in the church too often? We decide who is not one of us, seeking separation rather than doing what Jesus and Paul command us to do, to welcome them. Now, we don't squabble over what one eats at our potluck dinners together, and we don't argue over the holidays that we choose to honor, but there are a lot of other things that, we have, a ten that have a tendency to separate us. And certainly, there are little things that we differ on that we can even fixate on together. Oh, for instance, what version of the Bible is the right version to read? Is it the King James Version only? Should we read the New International Version or the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible? Or do we dare read the message? A paraphrase of Scripture. Is worship compromised when the drums and guitar are played? 
Or is it stagnant and rigid if we play an organ and sing from a hymnal? Is Sunday school a requirement to be a true Christian? Or is it simply okay to come to worship and to give financially? Who is the weaker brother or sister in Christ and who is the stronger? But these are trivial matters compared to other things that can really trigger the Jewish and Gentile divide. One reads the Bible literally, while another reads it as a story that leads us to God. One believes in evolution as God's plan, while another is a staunch creationist. One believes that it's permissible to drink alcohol in moderation, while another sees it as the root of all evils. One views mission as giving all of our financial resources away to those who are poor, while another sees mission as an investment in Christian education in the church. And who dares to speak about social and political issues in the church? One says that you can't be a Christian and be a Democrat at the same time, while another says you can't be a Christian and be a Republican at the same time. One person says that black lives matter, and another person says that all lives matter. One says that marriage is only between a man and a woman, and another says it's between two persons. I find that maybe it would be much simpler if we were just arguing over meat and holidays. You see, it's much easier to accept someone who has a different perspective or a different interpretation of the scriptures than we do, but it's much harder to welcome them. Yes, we can worship together while sitting on different pews. We can refuse to talk about our differences and simply smile at one another, knowing that we could never sit at the same table. But that's not what Paul commands, and that's not what Jesus teaches either. Paul tells us not to judge or condemn one another. The strong shouldn't become self-righteous towards the weak and try to convert them or push their thoughts on them. Nor should the weak judge the strong or try to distance themselves from them. No, we are to be welcoming to both the weak and the strong as Jesus Christ is to each and every one of us. We are not called to absolute uniformity, but to a spirit of unity as Christ's church. Now, I don't know about you, but I love vanilla ice cream, especially when I eat ice cream, it's always going to be the flavor vanilla. Now, I recognize that there are other flavors, and you might prefer chocolate or strawberry, or if you're even an ice cream snob, you may like that real stuff they serve over at Kilwins. I can appreciate your taste for another flavor, even if I prefer not to eat it. But if everyone ate vanilla ice cream, I suppose it would be kind of vanilla, boring, so to speak. Or to put it another way, using a sports analogy, all of you know that I'm a huge Tar Heels fan. Certainly this is the right way, and all other fans are sinners, right? But as much as I abhor Duke University, I can't appreciate the rivalry between Duke and Carolina without Duke fans to cheer against them. Duke and Carolina need each other, even though they are different schools and different teams. And I find in the same way that the church is diverse and that we all need one another. We need chocolate and vanilla ice cream lovers. We need Duke and Carolina fans and even non-ACC fans. 
God has called all of us together, uniting us by his spirit. And we may differ on many things together. We may disagree about all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, we have all been welcomed into Christ's church. And so Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 1, saying, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see, we have been welcomed by the waters of baptism that marks us and claims us as children of God. And we are welcomed to the same table, Christ's table of grace, where we participate with thanksgiving, receiving the kingdom meal together. And as Christ's disciples... We are called to welcome one another, both the weak and the strong, for we all have the same Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And so as we welcome one another, we should listen and learn together, even if we disagree. For we know how our society deals with disagreements, but we're the church, and the church is called to be different, to see things from a different perspective In fact, as Paul says, we're to welcome the one whose faith is weak or strong or even different without quarreling over disputable matters. So when the day comes when we're finally able to welcome guests back to our homes again, I encourage you to be intentional not just in welcoming those who we consider to be one of us, but to also welcome those who differ with us that together we might truly be united in Christ. You see, in doing so, the church bears witness to Jesus who shows us in the Gospels that he has no boundaries, no boundaries that separates us from him. And in fact, He pursues us and he finds us and he invites us and welcomes us into his fellowship that together we might be united in him. Friends, may we do this both this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.